Hello, everyone. My name is Markus Kornberg. I'm a hepatologist and infectiologist at the Hanover Medical School in Germany and one of the authors of the recent easel position paper on the use of COVID-19 vaccines in patients with chronic liver diseases, hepatobiliary cancer, and liver transplant recipients. The topic of COVID-19 vaccination is on everyone's mind at the moment and therefore a very important topic. Due to the unprecedented rapid development of the COVID-19 vaccines, there will be probably also the new findings quickly about which will provide updates. Today, we would like to discuss some new data and answer some questions of our readers. With me today, I would like to introduce two more co-authors of the position paper, Dr. Christiane Eberhardt. She is a clinical vaccinologist at the Center for Vaccinology, University Hospital of Geneva, Switzerland, and also affiliated at the Emory Vaccine Center in Atlanta, USA. Professor Daniel Chauval is a hepatologist and has a long-term research interest in vaccines. He is professor at the Hadassah Hebrew University Hospital in Jerusalem, Israel. Now, let me come to my first questions, uh, question, and uh, this question is to Dr. Eberhardt. The development of the vaccines was unprecedentedly fast, and one program was even called the Lightspeed Project. One wonders now how this is really possible and whether all safety precautions have been taken. Can you explain the approval process to our listeners who may have concerns about this rapid approval? Yes, first of all, I would like to reassure everyone um, in saying that um, every step of a usual approval um, has been uh, uh, undertaken for these vaccines um, and that there was uh, no shortcuts that were taken. So usually what happens is that um, we have uh, first preclinical tests where we test in animals, um, medications and vaccines. And then we go into humans where healthy people um, receive uh, vaccines where we can figure out the dose, so how much we need and how the immune system respond. And then it goes to a phase three trial um, where we uh, vaccinate um, tens of thousands of people and we see if there is um, any uh, effect uh, in terms, um, in this case, of, of COVID-19 disease, yes or no, in vaccinated um, people. And this has been done for all the COVID vaccines. But why was it so fast compared to what we know usually? This is because there was such a, a huge uh, political interest and there was so much money that was put in um, to these processes. And this allowed for each process kind of to start at the same time. So uh, usually you finish one phase and then you see the results, you go into the next phase and here everything uh, was accelerated, um, but nothing was skipped. Um, so you can be reassured that it's a, it's a safe vaccine and still safety data are, um, are taken now uh, from, from people that get vaccinated in the real world. And, and we um, have surveillance systems that is called pharmacovigilance um, and any signal is... Um, is announced to the authorities and very carefully um, uh, tested and, 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 and looked at. Okay, um, we have uh, made recommendations for three vaccines in our position paper that uh, are approved by FDA or the EMA. The Pfizer-BioNTech, the Moderna and the AstraZeneca vaccine. I would just like to note that there are other vaccines uh, that are currently in use, for example, in Russia or China, and uh, many more are coming. Are there any new approved vaccines in the meantime that may be relevant for our uh, listeners? Yes, yeah, so there is, um, let's say, the three main type of vaccines. We have the um, RNA-based vaccines, which is the vaccine from Pfizer, uh, BioNTech and Moderna. 
And then we have um, the virus vector vaccines, which is, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the vaccine and that is so-called Sputnik V that comes from Russia, and also the, the vaccine um, that has been done in China, which is based on, on human adenoviruses. There is another vaccine that uh, was in the media lately, and that is in an approval phase, which is from Johnson & Johnson or from Janssen, which is also a vector vaccine. And then there is other vaccines um, that take more time in the development phase, um, which is protein-based vaccines. And it's, for example, Novavax, where we have heard um, some new data that uh, came up from their phase three trial, um, which uh, will be in the approval phase also very soon. So there are very good news. Uh, however, we made recommendations for patients with chronic liver disease, hepatobiliary cancer, and liver transplant recipients of, of uh, whom are considered more or less immunocompromised. We will come to this in more detail later on. However, at the time of writing our position paper, we had really no data in these groups, and our recommendations were more or less based on hypothetical assumptions. Uh, Dr. Ebert, why do we have not no data for these immune compromised patients from the studies? Can you provide more insights and when can we expect these data? So it's a normal process that um, when uh, there is a new medication or a new vaccine that in the phase three trial, we uh, include um, healthy uh, individuals and, and healthy volunteers that can have some comorbidities, um, how it was here was the elderly because it's one of the target groups um, or uh, people with obesity or under other comorbidities. But in general, um, we don't uh, include immunocompromised patients because we want to be sure that a vaccine is safe in, in healthy individuals. Um, and then once we have these data, uh, we, we can go forward and, and um, do studies in immunocompromised patients. And this is the same what happens for the, for the COVID-19 vaccine. And now there are studies ongoing um, that um, assess the immunogenicity. So that looks at how the immune system from immunocompromised patients responds to vaccines. This is data that we are expecting. And also in the real world now, we started vaccinating immunocompromised um, patients. Um, and so far we haven't seen any safety signal, which is very, very reassuring. And, and we wait for more data to come to see if immunocompromised patients are also protected against disease and against hospitalization. Yeah, real world data. I think we are seeing more and more about this and I will come to the real world data in a minute. But first uh, I would like to ask Professor Cheval the following questions. First, what does immunocompromised really mean? Maybe we need some more explanations here. And second, what concerns do we actually have for the immune compromised individual uh, if they get vaccinated? Well, <clears throat> first of all, thank you for, thank you for letting me uh, present uh, some of our uh, views on the issue. Uh, what concerns uh, immunocompromised patients? Uh, usually the normal immune system, which usually maturates after a few months after birth, probably takes uh, up to one year and after birth that the immune system is uh, really getting into shape, uh, that there are two limbs of the immune system which which respond to any uh, uh, stimulus like an infectious agent. Now, in normal individuals, we have two limbs of the immune system. One we call the humoral immune response and the other is a cellular immune response. Both of these limbs of the immune response are important, first of all, to neutralize any infectious agent and also to induce a memory, a long-term memory, in case this infectious agent uh, is met again in the future. Now, uh, in normal individuals, 
the immune system is active through the whole life of a person. Sometimes at uh, older age, there is uh, some kind of an immunosense senescence that it is a little weaker, but usually it lasts for life. Now, when we have background uh, diseases like uh, chronic hepatitis or cirrhosis, and also in patients who get drugs which suppress the immune system, like corticosteroids, uh, then the immune system is weaker and the response is sluggish and sometimes there is no response at all to a vaccine. So patients with chronic disease, especially patients with cirrhosis and chronic liver disease, do have an immune response, but it is weaker compared to the general population. And therefore, we have to be careful when we immunize patients who are immunocompromised, for instance, patients after transplantation or patients with chronic disease, because the response is not as fast and as intense as in normal individuals. Okay, I will come to, to this issue again later on. You mentioned that these uh, drugs uh, uh, who leads to immunosuppression um, you know, uh, are important. Uh, are there any concerns, by the way, of, of drug interactions with the vaccines? There was also frequently asked questions by the audience. Well, as far as we know, there isn't, based on the experience we have right now, there shouldn't be uh, an, uh, an interaction which compromises a patient. But we have to remember that it will take some time until we gain more experience. But so far, thousands of transplanted patients and immunosuppressed patients have already been immunized. And there was no serious safety signal from the experience we have gathered so far. Yeah, that is, I think, also an important news uh, and, and important data because several um, questions were also regarding the safety issue in immunocompromised patients. Uh, uh, Professor Shoha, we're hearing a lot of good news from Israel about the real world data and uh, how many people have already been vaccinated. Uh, so is there any experience already with vaccination in, in these patient cohorts, liver cirrhosis, uh, immunocompromised patients? Can you give me some insights from uh, Israel? Well, uh, I'll just say, make it very brief as possible. Israel has a population about almost 8 million people. And so far, uh, 4 million individuals received the first dose and 3.58 million people received the second dose, which means that almost half of the population is already immunized with two doses and the other half with one dose. And this is true for adults above the age of 16. What we can say for, I mean, what is important is that special risk groups, especially the older individuals, 86% of the 90 years old and 84% of 80 years old and 87% of 70 years old are all immunized. And the result is really uh, amazing. Uh, I mean, the numbers are really uh, uh, getting better. It is too early yet to uh, conclude, uh, it really makes the, the final conclusion, but it appears quite effective. What is also more impo important is that there is already some protection after the first dose, which is over 50%, but then it goes up after the second dose over 90%. So far in Israel, there are um, about 930, uh, patients who, um, uh, uh, who passed away, 
But other than that, the numbers are going down. And from the immunized cohorts, uh, the, the, the numbers of patients who uh, are, are went into serious condition is getting smaller and smaller. And any uh, data already on, on uh, patients after transplantation, for example, or immunocompromised patients, or it's too uh, early to conclude something? We are just collecting the data. And I think next week, uh, Professor Safadi from my group is going to present uh, some of these data. Once there are some, we are really working on it right now, but there are already some preliminary data. Just, uh, I can't reveal all of these data, but I can say that there is some, uh, um, I would say, delay in the immune response, which is manifested in seroconversions and in titers in immunosuppressed patients. But all in all, the performance of the vaccine is excellent. The issue is, however, uh, especially in immune suppressed patients and in uh, transplant patients, whether they will need a booster at a later stage. And maybe we can discuss this a little later. Yeah, we, we, we discuss it at the end. Again, so um, in our position paper, we did not make a recommendation for or against the special vaccine. Um, and uh, recently, there have been some discussions about the AstraZeneca vaccine, also in Germany. From you know, it was a big discussion, maybe related that there was not so many data, for example, in the elderly. Uh, could you explain, Dr. Ebert, maybe the reason for this? discussions and why there were some concerns of using the one or the other vaccine. Are there any new data that might be important for our audience? So just to remember, the AstraZeneca vaccine um, is a, a viral vector, but it's a, a vector that comes from the chimpanzees or from the monkey, uh, which can not really normally in, infect humans, and it's not able to um, replicate in the body. So you cannot increase the number of these viruses when you get the vaccine. So this just as, as a little uh, parenthesis. Um, and then, yes, there were uh, in their phase three trial, so the trial that leads to um, the approval, um, the group of elderly um, who were vaccinated above the age of 65 uh, was low um, because they uh, had more healthy young individuals um, in this trial. And this led to um, some uh, concerns because uh, the people were not sure if they could do recommendations also for the elderly populations about the efficacy of this vaccine. Um, now there is um, some uh, new data that came up, which is not from the phase three trial, but which is from the real world. Um, and it shows that also in the elderly population in the UK where, where it was um, given, that there was an, uh, an effectiveness. So it means that people were less likely to be hospitalized or, or die of, of COVID um, when they got this vaccine. And this is reassuring um, data. And we are waiting for more information from these clinical trials that are now expanded and, and give this vaccine um, also to the elderly population to increase the number um, and to increase knowledge on this. So I think that is really important news that we have also now very good data from the real world about this vaccine. Um, as mentioned before about the topic immunocompromised patient, there were a lot of questions regarding this topic. And uh, if the efficacy of the vaccine is lower, presumably lower, and it's advisable for, is it then advisable for immunocompromised uh, people, even if they got the vaccine to go to work, sport or the hospital? Uh, Dr. Ebert, what, what is your, uh, uh, your uh, view on this? 
Sure. I mean, um, we we have the, these uh, vaccines kind of to allow us to go back to a little bit of a more uh, normal life, but we cannot forget that we don't know um, about their ability, for example, to not um, transmit the virus, right? So there is data that come up that which shows that um, people who are vaccinated, they can still carry the virus in their nose, but they don't have any symptoms, right? And this is also why um, the public health agencies, they still recommend um, to anyone also vaccinated or not to continue doing social distancing, wearing masks and um, uh, and, 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 and washing hands and, and avoid any unnecessary contact until we know uh, more about this. Hmm. Avoiding unnecessary contacts is also, uh, I think, an important topic when it comes to visit at the, at the hospital. So um, telemedicine may be an important innovation in, in this uh, context to avoid certain on-site doctor visits. This could be also sustainable and be used even after the pandemic. I think, Professor Chauvel, did you introduce telemedicine in your hospital to avoid unnecessary doctor visits at the pandemic? The answer is yes. And this was a gradual process. The adaptation for, uh, on behalf of the patients was more uh, slow. Also, the older physicians were not very keen about it, but all in all, we can now see almost all of our patients by telemedicine, at least for a first visit. The problem is that you cannot perform a physical examination. Yeah. So, and it takes also more time than a usual uh, visit because the patients have to present data or send them ahead. So it is a little more cumbersome, but it's working. So ideally, the vaccine really also prevents transmission. And, and Dr. Ebert, you mentioned this, uh, uh, that there may be the risk still if, if you get the vaccine that you may transmit the virus. But you know, in our position paper, we recommended vaccinating also the household members of the vulnerable patient groups, uh, for example, the immune compromised patient for whom the vaccine may have a lower efficacy as discussed earlier. Um, at the time of writing, we we're really not sure whether the vaccine could really prevent transmission, as you just also discussed. Uh, are there maybe any new data about this? Did we get maybe some, maybe for Professor Chauval, did we get some data from Israel already that the vaccine may prevent also transmission? So there's data, beautiful data um, from, from Israel that were published in, in, in the New England Journal that showed um, when they vaccinated uh, more than 400,000 um, individuals um, and they matched it with controls, there's a, a clear decrease um, in, in symptomatic or in all um, COVID uh, detection of infection. So yes, um, people who are vaccinated, they're less likely to, uh, to, to get the disease, but also there is some information in, in, this, um, in this paper that indicates that there's also uh, a lower percentage of asymptomatic carriers. But this, these studies were not um, designed to test if there is a, an effect on, on transmission. What um, data from England show that they are not yet published, but it's on this preprint service, um, that they um, did uh, swaps in healthcare professionals after um, vaccination, and they looked if they are PCR positive, so meaning if they carry the virus or not. And they also could show that there was a clear decrease after vaccination in, in people who are asymptomatic um, carriers. It's small data. It's uh, but we have um, the impression that yes, there is an effect, but it's not a hundred percent effect. So not everybody who is vaccinated can will not be carrier anymore. So this is why it's important that for the moment we maintain all these um, social distancing and public health measures, as I said, and that we vaccinated or not continue wearing masks and, and washing hands. Uh, 
um, to um, to avoid transmission, even if you are vaccinated. Yeah, but at least yeah. I think first data show that we may uh, reduce the risk of, of transmission and the recommendation to vaccinate the household members of, of the really vulnerable groups, I think is, is a good recommendation. Yeah, may I just say something about that? And yes. uh, what is important right now, the problem is with household members is that the vaccine is at least at this stage and not uh, available for children and it's not licensed for children. I mean, we are going down to the age of 16. So the adolescents are st uh, already uh, immunized here, but not below. So the issue is of the children uh, in the households of infected persons. And we would like to get to a stage where we can also immunize younger children. Yeah, that is an important comment. I, I think that we need to be aware. And, Dr. Ebert has a question. Yeah, and also, um, I mean, the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, because it comes from the University of Oxford, where it's the pediatrician who runs the, the vaccine program, they have data on, on children, right? So they included from the beginning uh, young children um, to, to see that, the, that it is a safe vaccine. And now also Pfizer and Moderna, they um, have uh, expanded their groups to uh, the younger population. For these children, it's important that we know that they cannot transmit it because they don't really get very sick. Um, but as soon as we have more ideas, it's absolutely something that um, should be discussed to also um, vaccinate the younger household members. I agree with Professor Schuval. Great. So finally, a question to both of you. Um, there's an important question about the duration of protection after vaccination that everyone, of course, is interested in. What, what is your uh, what do you think? How long are we protected? And do we need booster vaccination maybe after six months, one year, two years? Do you have any concerns about the emerging mutations? Um, and are there perhaps concerns about vaccinating uh, people after they uh, have had the infection? Is, uh, maybe we start with Professor Chauvel. Well, uh, that's an important question, but the answers are not yet available. What I can say is, first of all, that there is no clear-cut definition what is a protective title of antibodies uh, against the virus. And uh, we know there are neutralizing uh, antibodies, but there is no real standard yet. Now, based on the knowledge from other vaccines, we have to anticipate that somehow a long time, the immunity is going to wane. But in most vaccines that we have in protein vaccines that have, we have been using in the past, the immune memory usually lasts for decades, the immune memory afforded by vaccination. But in this particular case, when the vaccine is a, a RNA vaccine or even the protein vaccine, uh, we don't know how long the immune memory is going to last. So we have to monitor. The problem is, that the, we, are, we are using assays which uh, measure the antibodies, but we don't know which of these antibodies are neutralizing. So there is something to do along the way, and we'll have to study this more in detail in the future. It is likely that we will need booster vaccina vaccination in the future, hopefully not as with influenza, where we had to give it every year, but uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the duration of the immune memory is not yet established. Dr. Ewald, any 
com comments on the emerging yes, mutations? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, so this is the other point. So one, um, just to add on course to uh, Professor Cheval is that um, there is also, we know that the white blood cells uh, also play a role uh, in, in defending um, and when we don't have any assay that can really assess um, the quantity of, of white blood cells that are specific for SARS-CoV-2 and that might protect us, uh, which also is, is something um, which it makes it difficult to assess the duration of a protective um, immunity. And yes, and there's the, the emergent virus, uh, variants that we, we see. Um, some were first detected in the UK, others in, in South Africa, in Brazil. Um, we, we know for the strain that was first detected in the US that most of the vaccines we currently use um, seem to be um, efficient. Uh, for the strains that um, are first detected in South Africa and in Brazil, we see that there is um, reinfections. So people who had during the first wave, the classical um, strain and can now be reinfected with um, the mutants, um, which makes us um, being very careful and, and aware and, and follow this up to see if vaccines need to be um, adapted um, or not. So this is something that is in the air. It's nothing that is urgent right now, but it's something that is very closely followed by the WHO and by the pharmaceutical companies um, to act as fast as they can if, if there is a need. Okay. Are there any other urgent issues we need to discuss? <clears throat> I just like to mention if possible, the issue of uh, what do we do if somebody is, in, or what are the concerns if somebody is incubating the virus, has been infected and gets vaccinated during the incubation period? I have been asked this question repeatedly here in Israel, uh, and I must say that we have never seen any serious consequence of immunization during the incubation period. And we are talking now about uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of vaccinees. So it is not absolutely clear, or I would say the time that we can uh, in, uh, intervene uh, during incubation is not exactly known. But I don't think there is any risk so far based on the information available of immunizing somebody who is incubating uh, COVID-19. Okay, thanks for this last important comment. So let me summarize our discussion. The development of the COVID-19 vaccines has been unprecedented fast with all necessary precautions taken to ensure the safety of the vaccines. The vaccines uh, have now been used in millions of individuals and initial real world data confirm their high efficacy and also their safety. Our recommendations to vaccinate household members of high risk patient groups who may have lower vaccine efficacy appear valid as initial data show that transmission can be reduced in vaccinated individuals, but we have to be uh, no, we, we have to note that of course children uh, are not vaccinated uh, to date, but we will see more and more data on this. However, data continue to be lacking to date on patients with chronic liver disease, hepatobiliar cancer and transplant recipients. We hope to see data soon uh, from the real world, for example, from Israel and uh, these individuals should nevertheless be vaccinated as soon as possible to prevent the severe complications of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And uh, finally, I would like to thank Professor Cheval and Dr. Eberhard for their contribution and wish all listeners all the best and above all that they remain protected from COVID-19.